you expect at some point a plentiful harvest of apples. If you work diligently to start a new business, you know, what do you expect from all of the promotion and all the planning? At some point, you expect a reasonable, if not great, success in your new work. If you simply work hard at a job that you have, you expect to be fairly compensated. If you invest your money with a broker, you expect above average returns. Otherwise, you'd do it yourself. And we have even similar expectations about generosity when we extend it to people. You know, for example, if you send off a sizable financial gift to a struggling adult son, you expect him to spend it wisely, right? And keep on making decisions for the future because you're not sending any more, right? If you express exceptional kindness to someone, you expect their disposition towards you to be one of kindness, if not friendship. And if you don't get the results that you expect, well, then you decide you're going to plant new trees. You're going to change your business strategy. You're going to find a new job. You're going to get a new broker. You're not going to give lavish gifts to people that are unappreciated. You're going to find other people to become your friends if those who try to be friends slight you. But this relationship expectation is also true in the spiritual realm of our lives as well. God expects results from His kindness toward all people, at least that they would seek Him. And especially from giving them the revelation of His Scripture that they would want to learn and cherish Him, and most especially from the giving of His Son, Jesus Christ, that He would expect a true faith and holy behavior. You know, all people are responsible to God for His graciousness toward them, and it's a great dishonor to God to not believe in Him and in His Son, whom He has sent. So please turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 20, verses 9 to 19, as we learn about honoring the Son. You can also follow along in the print text in your bulletin. But the parable begins, and so He began to tell the people this parable, that is, Jesus did. A man planted a vineyard and let it out to tenants to, and went to another country for a long while. When the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent another servant, but they also beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent yet a third. This one also they wounded and cast out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they'll respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When they heard this, they said, Surely not. But he looked directly at them and said, What then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. The scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour, for they perceived that he had told this parable against them, but they feared the people. So God expects a spiritual harvest from those to whom he's given so much revelation. And not only did this apply to the Jewish people at the time, but it applies in principle to us all. And so Luke is telling us as the church 
that we should be committing ourselves to honor the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who has come from heaven, redeemed us, gone back into heavenly glory, and is coming back again. And the way that we honor Him in the meantime is by bearing spiritual fruit for God in our lives. And so Luke records this allegory of history, and then the teaching on how things are different, very different now. In verses 9 to 16, God and His Son have been dishonored in the past. But as Jesus tells the story in verses 17 to 19, God and His Son will be honored from now on. And Luke is closing in as he writes his gospel account on the final days of Jesus' life on earth. And before we observe the cross and the resurrection in his account, there's this brief ministry in Jerusalem where he's teaching, and there are five controversies, and we're on the second one today, before the Passion actually begins. So last Sunday, we looked at the first and most important controversy, and that controversy is about the authority of Jesus Christ, whether or not he really has it to speak. And today's controversy surrounds the topic of spiritual fruitfulness. Jesus is accusing the leaders of failing to produce sufficient spiritual fruit in themselves and from the people of God for God. God expects a spiritual harvest from those to whom he's given so much revelation. And so let's begin our look at this. In the first part of the passage, he tells us how God and his son have been dishonored in the past. The servants and the prophets have been rejected in verses 9 to 12. We read about that. But not only have the servants and the prophets been rejected in the story, the son, who we know is the Messiah, is also rejected in verses 13 to 16. And so it begins in verses 9, and he began to tell him this parable, a man planted a vineyard. And there's a very obvious reference to a famous passage in the Old Testament called the Song of the Vineyard from Isaiah chapter 5. So please turn in your Bibles to this. I want you to see it. So Isaiah 5, beginning in verse 1. And Jesus' parable is built on this story from the introduction to the book of Isaiah. Very well known. Isaiah 5, 1 begins, Let me sing now for my well-beloved a song of my beloved concerning his vineyard. My well-beloved had a vineyard on a fertile hill, and he dug it all around, removed its stones, and planted it with the choicest vine, and he built a tower in the middle of it. And he hewed out a wine vat in it. Then he expected it to produce good grapes, but it produced only worthless ones. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there for me to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? Why, when I expected it to produce good grapes, did it produce worthless ones? So now let me tell you what I am going to do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge and it will be consumed. I will break down its wall, and it will become trampled ground. And I will lay it waste. It will not be pruned or hoed, but briars and thorns will come up. I will also charge the clouds not to rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah his delightful plant. Thus he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, a cry of distress. And so judgment came upon the people in the exile in the 6th century B.C. to Babylon. That's the fulfillment of that prophecy. But you see, God has taken great care of His people, of His own choosing and His own planting, His vineyard. Jesus builds His parable on this one. And now in this parable of Jesus, there's an extension of the metaphor or a reapplication, if you will, 
of fulfillment of this prophecy. And the application is to all of the people of his time, but especially against the leaders who are responsible. God has provided everything that his leaders of his people need, like the landowner in the vineyard parable. He supplied a wine press for productivity, a tower and a hedge and a wall to keep out animals and enemies. He's made the full readiness of his vineyard for the tenant farmers to come in and confident that they're going to be productive. In other words, Jesus, as he's telling this parable, very clearly saying, God has given his word and his scriptures by his prophets, and he himself is their strength and protection. So should he not expect a crop of righteousness and faith in the Messiah when he would come from the leaders and the people? And so the landowner in our parable, after sufficient time being on a long journey, sends his servants to collect the rent payment. And as was common, the rent payment would be in the form of produce at harvest time. And these tenant farmers would not grant the payment that was due. They decided that they were going to keep it all for themselves and not pay their rent. And beyond just being these wicked tenant farmers, vine keepers, they're actually attempting, as we see in the story, to steal the vineyard. That's their ultimate goal. So they plan to keep the owner off of the property for three years and then claim it as occupants because there's a disinterested owner. We know these same type of people today. They're called squatters. That's what they're doing. Or they're thinking, well, maybe the landowner is actually close to death. We'll just wait him out. I mean, if he's sending his son, he must be sick. And so the current leaders of God's people, you see, are just like the leaders before them. The Lord God has sent his prophets to the people of God, and they only mistreated them, and they failed to heed all of their warnings. They would not believe the prophets or obey the obligations of the covenant. They had the law, they had the covenant, they had the temple, they had the promises, they had the history, and yet they would not be faithful as God's people, and he would hold them accountable for that. Luke says in the parable here that the first was beaten, the second was shamed, and the third wounded, and they all returned without the produce to the landowner. And it's clear from history that they even killed some of the prophets of God that was sent to them. For example, here are some of them that were beaten and shamed in the history of God's people. In 1 Kings, we read this one. Then Zedekiah, the son of Chenaaniah, came near and struck Micaiah on the cheek and said, how did the Spirit of the Lord pass from me to speak to you? In Jeremiah 20, Pasher had Jeremiah the prophet beaten and put him in the stocks that were at the upper Benjamin gate, which was by the house of the Lord. In Jeremiah 37, then the officials were angry at Jeremiah and beat him, and they put him in jail in the house of Jonathan the scribe, which they had made into a prison. And there are plenty of examples of them killing the prophets as well. In 1 Kings 18, a prophet Obadiah says to Elijah, has it not been told to my master what I did when Jezebel killed the prophets of the Lord, that I hid a hundred of them by fifties in a cave and provided them with bread and water. Jeremiah 26. Indeed, there was also a man who prophesied in the name of the Lord, Uriah, the son of Shemaiah from Kiriath-Jerim. And he prophesied against this city and against this land with similar words to those of Jeremiah. 
And when King Jehoiakim and all his mighty men and all the officials heard his words, then the king sought to put him to death. But Uriah heard it, and he was afraid and fled and went to Egypt. Then King Jehoiakim sent men to Egypt, Elnathan, the son of Akbar, and certain men with him went into Egypt, and they brought Uriah from Egypt and led him to King Jehoiakim, who slew him with a sword and cast his dead body into the burial place of the common people. And Second Chronicles 24. Then the Spirit of, the Lord came, Spirit of God came upon Zechariah, the son of Jehoiada, the priest. And he stood above the people and said to them, Thus God has said, Why do you transgress the commandments of the Lord and do not prosper? Because you have forsaken the Lord. He has also forsaken you. So they conspired against him, and at the command of the king, they stoned him to death in the court of the house of the Lord. So not only is Jesus saying by this parable that this guilt is historically true and characteristic of the past leaders of God's people, but it's surely true in the present time, the current leadership as well. Jesus is accusing them right now and then of being involved in this centuries-long coup to steal God's people and to steal God's kingdom for themselves, for their own personal little kingdoms. With this parable, Jesus is exposing the age-old conspiracy and declaring it's over now. And so not only did the current leadership just oppose the prophets, they opposed the Son. And in verses 13 to 16 we read, Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they'll respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When they heard this, they said, Surely not. Well, in the story, the landowner, in compassion and hope, that is God in our story, expects that they'll respect and fear his son. I mean, he's the beloved one, the only son, and he holds legal power as the son. It should remind us of the beginning of the book of Hebrews when it opens this way. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us through his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he also made the world. But no, the wicked vine growers, the leaders would only express the extent of their evil and their callousness toward the son as well. This is their final opportunity to possess the vineyard by their occupation. They're not going to abandon their plan just because the landowner decides to send his son. The conspiracy, you see, has reached its height. They can taste it. They're thirsty for blood. And so they reason together how they're going to steal the vineyard by murdering the son and becoming then the heirs, if you will, in his place. Perhaps they were hoping that the owner would abandon his claim to the vineyard after the way they treated his servants. Or maybe now they think the owner is dead or he's about to die since the son has come instead. Well, this is what the Jewish leaders were like in Jesus' day, according to Jesus. They were entrusted with the care of the people to bring forth fruit for God, but instead they sought to steal God's people and make them their own personal disciples, not God's, building their own little wicked kingdoms for themselves. 
So just as the wicked vine growers in the parable would cast out the son and murder him outside so as not to defile the vineyard and refuse to bury him, they would soon murder these same people, would soon murder the Messiah, the Son of God, outside of Jerusalem, the holy city, in reproach. In John chapter 19, verse 17, it says, They took Jesus, therefore, and he went out, bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which is in Hebrew, Golgotha. And in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 12, Therefore Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people through his own blood, suffered outside the gate. Hence, let us go to him outside the camp, bearing his reproach. Oh, it's very clear what Jesus is saying in this parable. He's predicting his death at the hands of these evil men. So after getting done predicting his death through the parable, Jesus asked the people, what's going to happen to these wicked farmers when the landowner decides to return? Because God's not going to give up on his own vineyard and his people. So he answers the question himself, and he says, well, their end is going to be wretched like it as they deserve. The vineyard's going to be given to other people who will actually pay rent at the proper time. They indeed would lose the kingdom and all their authority with the people of God, you see, because the apostles would be the new leaders of the new people of God. and would only be a generation away, and the little bit of their kingdom that they thought they had would be wiped out and gone. Well, the leaders and most Jews at the time rejected Jesus, and so, you see, the blessing is going to go to the Gentiles. That's the theme of the Gospel of Luke. They'll all understand the message of this parable very clearly, as in noted in verse 16b. Did you see that, how they responded to the parable? They know exactly what this parable is about, so they simply say, well, may it never be, or this isn't going to happen. And Jesus makes it clear to the religious leaders that the kingdom of God is going to be taken away from them. And it's going to be given to a new people who will bear the fruit of righteousness. They'll pay the rent at the right time and fulfill their responsibilities. This new people will be a different people, a spiritual people of God, a new community. The true people who believe in the Messiah, Jesus Christ, from all over the world. This people. You see, God and His Son have been dishonored in the past, but the that time's about to come to an end, and God and His Son are going to be honored. They've had enough. And so this message, you know, is not just for the religious leaders of the time. It applies to everyone who's benefited from God's grace. And for some of us, some of you here today maybe, need to think about what God has really done for you in showing you the way of truth and the salvation that's in Jesus. Has He not sent you many messengers of the gospel, pastors, authors, speakers, friends, Relatives, how have you received their messages? Has he not been patient with you and gracious, providing blessings and opportunities to you? So what have you done? Have you paid him back the rent, which would be faith in Jesus Christ and obedience to him? But most of us here this morning have already done that. We do believe most joyfully upon Jesus as our Savior. He died in our place, rose for our forgiveness, and we have a hope of eternal life. And we're delighted to be considered part of God's vineyard and God's people. Delighted to be delighted in by Him. So what we should see most in this parable, I believe, is the very storyline of redemption where Jesus places Himself right in the middle of it. To strengthen our faith in our God, who
who is our Savior and our Lord, and to commit ourselves to honor the Son, Jesus Christ, who is coming back, and that will be the pinnacle of the history of redemption. And so in the meantime, the way we honor him is to by, by bearing much spiritual fruit in the meantime. So God and his son have been dishonored in the past, but no more. God and his son are now going to be honored from, from now on in verses 17 to 19. And so the son, the Messiah, is honored in verses 17 to 18, but there's more to the story that has to come first in verse 19. He's going to have to be seized. And so we read in 17 and 18, but he, Jesus, looked directly at them and said, what then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. So Jesus brings the application of the parable to bear upon the leaders very directly. Did you notice the words? It's a very particular word in the original language here. He looked straight at them in their eyes, and he quoted Psalm 118.22 to their face, as if they'd never read it or don't know how to interpret it. So what then is this that's written? And he quotes that psalm. And the psalm is speaking of a Davidic king, and of course it's quoted by Jesus as the Messiah in reference to himself as the one who fulfills that psalm, David's greater son. And we looked at that psalm on Easter. The psalm is about God's reversal, if you will, of the one that's been rejected by the people but anointed by God. And now ultimately it applies to the Messiah. So the meaning behind Jesus' quotation is simply this, that they thought Jesus was unsuitable to be the Messiah. Yet God made him the foundation stone, the cornerstone, of a new building, of a new people. And yet, this has become marvelous in our eyes. It's odd to behold it, this exaltation of Jesus as the Christ. He's the despised one who's going to be beaten and shamed shortly, but he'll soon become the vindicated one. It's really important to notice that because the leaders have rejected Jesus as the Messiah, they've made themselves enemies of God. And these words from Psalm 118, verse 22 are very important for the early church. Right after Pentecost, we read in Acts chapter 4. Then Peter, just listen to these, Acts chapter 4. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we are on trial today for a benefit done to a sick man, as to how this man had been made well, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel, but by the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this name, this man stands before you in good health. He is the stone which was rejected by you, the builders, but which became the very cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else. There is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. Later on, Peter will bring together all the major stone passages in the Old Testament. You can look these up later, but you just jot them down. There's only three. Isaiah 8.14, Isaiah 28.16, and Psalm 118.22 that we're looking at. So Isaiah 8.14 and 28.16, and then the Psalm 118.22. Well, the Apostle Peter later on defines the church 
And he brings together all of these stone passages to talk to us about who Jesus is and who we are in him. And so in 1 Peter chapter 2, again, just listen to the passage. And coming to him as a living stone, rejected by men, but choice and precious in the sight of God, you also as living stones are being built up into a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For this is contained in Scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him shall not be disappointed. The precious value, then, is for you who believe, but for those who disbelieve the stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. For they stumble because they are disobedient to the word and To this doom they were also appointed. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who calls you out of darkness into his marvelous light. For you were once not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And then we look at verse 18. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Jesus speaks judgment. Not only are they going to fall over him, they're going to be crushed. It's a parallelism here. Two things are being said, but it's intensified in the second line. So not only are they going to fall, they're actually going to be crushed. And it should be a reminder of us of the prophecies of Isaiah and Daniel concerning this particular time when Jesus Christ first came. Although at the same time, with a view to the final day of glory. So let me read to you these passages. Isaiah eight fourteen. Then he shall become a sanctuary, but to both the houses of Israel, a stone to strike and a rock to stumble over, and a snare and a trap for the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And many will stumble over them, and they will fall and be broken. They will be snared and be caught. Jesus is saying these prophecies are being fulfilled in his very presence. And then Daniel chapter 2. You continued looking until a stone was cut without hands, and it struck the statue on the feet of iron and clay and crushed them. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were crushed all at the same time and became like chaff from the summer threshing floors, and the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them was found." But the stone that struck the statue became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed, and that kingdom will not be left for another people. It will crush and put an end to all these kingdoms, but itself will endure forever. So not only is it dangerous not to believe in Jesus, the stone itself is dangerous and will crush. And so this despised stone is going to bring judgment upon unbelievers. Failure to embrace the kingdom, failure to embrace Jesus as the Son and the Messiah is going to result in the loss of the kingdom and future judgment on the final day of the Lord, where the landowner comes back with his exalted son. Jesus is very clear in this parable and this teaching. You notice how in the Gospel of Luke, his teaching gets clearer and clearer and clearer as we go through the book of Luke and we approach the final days. But you know, a lot has to happen yet. You know the story. Because the Son, the Messiah, has to be seized. 
And so we read in verse 19 as this story comes to a conclusion, the scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour, for they perceived that he had told this parable against them, but they feared the people. Jesus has directly challenged the leadership, deeply stirred up and worried the population. The leaders are ready to kill him right then and there. He had no right to be saying these kinds of things. But they feared the people in the public situation, and so they waited, waited a few days. So these leaders, the priests, the teachers, they understood Jesus' parable of judgment against them. It's very open, very direct. And they reject him as Messiah. And they will be crushed for doing so. But in their minds, they're thinking, well, we're going to show him. He says that he's going to crush us. Well, we're going to crush him. And they would crush him by putting him on that cross. And they would think to themselves how righteous they were. What great servants of God for putting to death this pretender. And they had succeeded. But the ironic tragedy of history is that rather than heeding their Messiah, they actually fulfill the parable. God and His Son will be honored from now on. And that would be the case with His cross and resurrection, what immediately followed. Jesus would start being honored by all the peoples of the world as the gospel went forth into all these different lands and people believed in Him. And of course, when he returns, he'll be honored forevermore. You see, times are different now in the history of redemption since Jesus came. And he saved us and made God fully known. This is not a time of ignorance and darkness. It's a time of revelation and light. And so it's a time for us to commit ourselves to honor Jesus, who is the Son, by bearing spiritual fruit in our lives. And God and his Son have been dishonored in the past, as we've seen. But from then on, Jesus is saying, approximately A.D. 30, he would be honored. And how would that take place? By salvation going to the ends of the earth. And by a forming of a new people of God. By bearing, who would bear more spiritual fruit, true spiritual fruit. It's the time for Jesus Christ to be honored and his glory to spread everywhere. So there are a couple major themes in our passage here. One is... Of course, honoring the Son of God. So how do we do that? How do we honor the Son? Here are a few ideas. Study about Him in the Bible. That's why you study the Bible, you know. It should be. The main reason we study the Bible is to learn more about Jesus. So we can worship Him as God. That's why we come here on a Sunday morning all together. Of course, you can worship Him on your own as well and in your families, but we worship Him. That's how we honor Him, by worshiping Him. And we worship Him as our Savior. We honor Him by making Him the center of our life. In other words, around which everything revolves. And not make our lives revolve around ourselves, or around our family, or around our church. Don't replace God with just things that are good. We also honor Him by making Him the purpose of our ministry and our service. Doing it for Him, not for ourselves, not for others even. Your ministry is not your ministry. It's God's. 
Don't replace God with a bunch of activity. Another way to honor him is to make him the goal of your fellowship, your time with him. It's to know him better and to reflect on who he is and what his word says. It's not for personal benefit. Oh, you'll get a lot of personal benefit, but that's not the main reason we spend time with our God. We don't want to replace God with just his benefits. And of course, we honor him by anticipating his return, the eternal blessings to come. And of course, we honor him by going and making more Christians. That's the mission of the church that Jesus left us, to go make disciples. That's the number one way we can honor him is by fulfilling the mission that he gave to the church. The Apostle Paul and the church's goal and his driving passion was articulated well in Romans 15, 16, where the Apostle said that he is a minister of Jesus Christ to the nations, ministering as a priest the gospel of God, that my offering of the Gentiles might become acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Ministering the gospel of God to the peoples of the world. Major theme in this passage is to honor the Son so we can be praying and thinking about how we can bring more honor to Jesus in our lives and as a group. But another theme is that God expects spiritual harvest from those who He's given so much revelation to us. We've been so blessed. And it's right for God to expect from us more faith. It's right for God to expect from us at Calvary more actual righteousness in our lives. He has given to us His Word, His Son, His Spirit. So let us give to Him the due harvest of faith and righteousness by growing in faith in Christ and actual righteousness. There's a whole lot more to attain, folks, than we've gotten to already. Let me pray for us. Lord God, we praise You for Your holiness, for Your blessings in our life, for the revelation that You've given to us in Scripture, and of course, Lord Jesus, the Eternal Son, we praise You for Your redemption that You've brought to us. We pray for ourselves as a people here that we would honor You more in our lives, in our worship, and in our life together, and especially in going out and making disciples, more followers of You, so that You get more honor than from just ourselves or ourselves, but from yet more and more people. And we also pray that you would get from our lives the spiritual harvest that you deserve, that you would get more faith from us, that you would get more obedience from us, that these things would become a part of our own desire and how we live before you and we live amongst one another. So we pray that you would bless us with the grace to produce all of this and so that you would be honored because that's our highest goal and desire. And we pray these things, of course, for Jesus' glory. Amen.